Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tong. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. And I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome to the show Dr. John Hagelin, who spoke at the Science and Non-Duality Conference a few weeks ago in San Rafael. And I was really impressed by John's ability to explain complex science to us in relatively simple terms. So, John, welcome to the show today. Peter, delighted to be on the show with you. Now, you have a very strong background in in a variety of areas, particularly in uh, particle physics. And so I would just love to hear you tell us a little bit about how this began for you, but then begin to uh, explore the the unified field, as it were. Very good. You know, like many of us, I was deeply interested in fundamental truth, discovering the truth of life as a college student, even high school student. And when I went to Dartmouth, I requested a joint major, dual major in physics and religion. I figured that, um, well, physics is at least reliable based on empirical verification that modern science, even if it's not so ambitious or wasn't at the time, at least it's reliable knowledge. And religion, I felt, dealt with the profound issues of life, maybe not as reliable, but certainly fascinating and important and has guided life for generations and must have some truth to it or simply wouldn't survive. I was rebuked. I was told you could not do a double major in physics and religion because they have nothing to do with each other. So I decided I had to to choose between the two and I went for physics and I'm rather glad I did because even though it was a slow route to the PhD and getting to a level of physics, where we were beginning to grapple with the deep, deep issues, it was at least a reliable path. And after many, many years uh, in my postdoctoral studies at CERN in Geneva and at Stanford University, finally physics had come to to an age, had really uh, matured to the point where it was now focused on the fundamental unity of life, which is also basic to most spiritual traditions of the world. Isn't that neat that you, you knew this beforehand and it, and it all came back to you? Because that doesn't always happen, does it? Well, I suppose not. But I think a lot of people are born with a sense that there is deep truth that underlies the surface. Some people give up looking for it, but I was persistent. And I actually ended up on a dual path. Whereas I did not major in religion, just physics, I was also fortunate enough to learn the transcendental meditation technique as a senior in high school in a body cast after a motorcycle accident. My doctor recommended that the very deep breast that transcending brings could be rejuvenating and help the healing process, which was a laborious, slow process. And I did benefit immediately. But what I discovered in that process is that After meditation, my ability to do physics, quantum mechanics, which I was learning on my own in the body cast at high school, suddenly became really lucid and enticing and delightful, actually, and not just, you know, abstract, dry material, which it had seemed to be so much before. 
So I said, well, this is amazing because not only seems, this is good for my body, deep meditation, but it also is revitalizing and clarifying for the mind. It seems to be engaging more and more of my brain. And as a research physicist, uh, it has always been my most important research tool, the analytic and intuitive capabilities of the mind. And my meditation just very powerfully developed that for me. So, John, let's talk a little bit about, about the science, because uh, I know people have heard the expression unified field and super string theory, but I don't think many of us really understand. Uh, so, so give us that, an understanding that, that, you can, uh, that you can help people with. Einstein started the whole trend to attempt to discover the fundamental unity of life, the fundamental unity at the basis of the surface complexity, surface diversity of the universe. And he didn't fulfill that goal in his lifetime. But in the last couple of decades, starting with supergravity and now the superstring, modern science has been able to evolve completely unified field theories, which identify a universal field of intelligence at the basis of all the diverse forms and phenomena, phenomena of the universe. And where that lies, in, in a sense, is within. That is, it's not on the surface level of day-to-day -day perceptions, the macroscopic sensory level, but it's diving within to explore microscopic and sub-microscopic levels of nature, from the molecular to the atomic to the nuclear to sub-nuclear levels of nature's functioning, and finally, when you get deeper than the deepest, you discover this universal ocean of existence, universal ocean of intelligence called the superstring field, which is the fountainhead of all the diverse laws of nature governing the universe and the fountainhead of all the particles and forces that uphold the universe. That superstring field, as it's called, is finally the fulfillment of Einstein's lifelong quest to discover the core reality of unity within you and me and everything and everyone. Everything and everyone is united at our core, at the deepest, deepest level of our own existence. That is the cutting edge of modern science. And that's finally for me when the objective approach of modern science, the empirical approach of modern science merged at least shook hands with the subjective approach of ancient science, like the Vedic science of consciousness and the tradition of yoga and so forth, which all are based upon the understanding and experience of the fundamental unity at the basis of mind and matter. So uh, just again, in terms of the science, how do, how, how do the quantum physicists get to this? And, and when we're talking about the, the actual matter itself, as, as you say, as you go deeper and deeper in, smaller and smaller and smaller, what, what actually is there? Well, it began with quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics tells us something rather surprising. And that is that the elementary particles, so-called the fragments of matter, like the electron, the quarks, the photon, the graviton, these are not little particles of matter at all. They are just waves of a field. The electron is a little ripple or wave function of what is called the electron field, a universal, unbounded, abstract field of pure electron-ness. 
as abstract as that sounds, that's the reality. We're living more in a universe of mind than the universe of matter. Similarly, a quark field or graviton field or photon field of light, these aren't really particles. A photon is really just a ripple or wave on an unbounded ocean or so-called photon field or electromagnetic field. Now that was quantum mechanics. Unified quantum field theory has simplified that picture by identifying a single field, a unified field, whose various vibrations and waves of excitation appear not only as just the photon, but photons, electrons, quarks, gluons, gravitons, all the particles and forces are now are just understood as the various vibrational tones or waves of a common universal medium, sort of an ocean of pure abstract existence whose excitations appear as the diverse particles and forces of nature. So when you go down to, to absolute zero, let's say, in terms of the temperature of the situation, uh, you're saying then it's, there's still something happening at that level? Well, absolute zero is just a temperature that is slow enough that molecules stop vibrating. Um, and what we're talking about in quantum mechanics, in a sense, is deeper than that. It's actually going into what an atom is, what a molecule is, what an elementary particle like an electron is. And they're not particles. They're little ripples on an ocean of pure being, pure existence, pure intelligence. That's the reality. And quantum physics, more than low temperature physics, has really made that clear that we're not living in a material world. We're living in a symphony where all the particles, forces, molecules, people, planets, galaxies are just packets of vibration. Vibration of what? vibrational waves of this universal ocean of being, ocean of intelligence, called the superstring field. Now, when you use the expression ocean of intelligence, can you talk about that intelligence? Absolutely. Intelligence is a legitimate term, even from the physics perspective, because it is the unified source of all the laws of nature that uphold behavior of the entire universe. It's the fountainhead of all the laws of nature that uphold chemistry, biology, particle physics, astronomy, cosmology. So these laws of nature governing biology, governing particle physics, are the intelligent expressions that give nature its orderliness, its predictability, its comprehensibility. So laws of nature are expressions of intelligence. And if the unified field is the unified source, the concentrated source of all the diverse laws of nature that uphold order throughout the universe, that field, unified field, must be the most concentrated field of intelligence in nature. It's the source of all of nature's intelligence, including our own. So now how does, how does consciousness fit into this picture? <clears throat> That's a very good point, because if we have at the basis of you and me, the basis of the electron, the basis of the planet, if we have this universal unified field of intelligence, it's not actually a static, inert, dead field of intelligence. It's a vibrant, dynamic, vital field of intelligence. 
The quantum principle, sometimes called the uncertainty principle, is the principle of increasing dynamism at smaller and smaller scales. It explains, for example, why nuclear power is a million times more powerful than chemical energy, because nuclear power involves the manipulation of the nucleus, which is a million times smaller than the manipulation of a molecule. So the smaller you go, the more dynamic, the more energetic nature becomes. This unification of all the laws of nature, the unification of all the different particles and forces of nature occurs at a very small scale, about a thousand million, 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 million times smaller than the proton. So at that fundamental small scale, the so-called super unified scale, the dynamism of nature is virtually infinite. So this is an immensely dynamic field of intelligence, and dynamic intelligence is consciousness. The origin of consciousness fundamentally is not the physical brain, although the physical brain reflects that consciousness, modulates that consciousness. And, and macroscopic functions like memory and cognitive processing are very much dependent on the brain. But consciousness itself is more fundamental than the brain, more so, fundamental even than the DNA. It's, so, John, I'm it, just going to... I'm going to ask yep. you to pause here because we're at our first break and, and obviously it's a good point to break and then we'll come back and you can continue with this really fascinating connection that you're making. Thank you so much. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Your online community for positive change. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. And I'm your host, Peter Tung. Just a reminder to go to my own website, www.petertung.com, where my January newsletter has just come out, and there's some wonderful information in there about the Holy Thorn Tree of Glastonbury and Victoria, and also uh, information about our ongoing workshops. Uh, we've just had a Sagittarius workshop and moving into uh, Capricorn uh, next uh, Sunday, actually, January the 8th. Having me today, John Hagelin, who is giving us a wonderful insight into particle physics. And when we get down to the basics, there aren't any particles. Going right down to uh, 
the awareness of consciousness at that at that level. And John, just before the break, you were beginning to move into uh, an explanation of that for us. So please do continue. Excellent. So what we had concluded was that the fundamental unity of life, the so-called unified field or superstring field, at the basis of all the diverse particles and forces of nature, the basis of all the diversity of people and planets and galaxies, this universal field of intelligence is fundamentally a field of consciousness, not abstract, inert, dead intelligence, but incredibly vital, lively, self-aware intelligence that is humming within itself. And that universal ocean of consciousness really is at the foundation of what we call mind and matter. It's interesting because many people think, I would say most medical doctors would have the perspective that consciousness is purely the byproduct of the brain, a side effect of electrochemical processes in the brain. And whereas, as I've said, a lot of what we experience on a relative level, memory and perception and cognitive processing, thinking, all of that is intimately dependent on the brain. But the phenomenon of consciousness itself, pure subjectivity, the liveliness of our awareness that makes us living experiencers, living beings, that fundamental consciousness, as opposed to mind and perception, is not created by the brain. It's fundamental in nature, and it is found deep within everyone and everything in this ocean of pure consciousness, pure being, the unified field in the language of physics. Um, and so in, in terms of, of, of reaching this place, of this place of this awareness, this consciousness, why is it so elusive to, to the human being? That is an extremely astute question. Unfortunately, even though fundamentally we are that ocean of consciousness, that ocean of being, that pure subjectivity that it's so difficult to put your finger on, but obviously we have it or we wouldn't be awake, we wouldn't be alive, we wouldn't be experiencing. The reason it's elusive is the very nature of what is called waking consciousness. Waking consciousness has a structure, and the structure of waking consciousness is always that we are aware of something. That something could be an object, like an apple, it could be a thought, it could be an emotion, it could be any kind of perception, but those are all things, some of them very concrete, like an apple, some of them subtle, like a thought or a feeling, but they're all things. The ocean of consciousness, the pure subjectivity within us, sees those things, experiences those things, but that ocean of consciousness, pure subjectivity itself, is not seen, not experienced in waking consciousness. The meditative state, however, classically understood and classically practiced. Meditation is a technique to turn the outwardly directed attention, normally flowing outward through the senses, powerfully within to experience and explore deeper levels of mind, quieter, subtler, more abstract levels of consciousness, abstract levels of human intelligence, until typically in a few minutes, depending on the technique, Consciousness comes to rest in this experience of this universal ocean of pure subjectivity, pure consciousness. So normally our attention is very concretely bound by a particular object like an apple. 
But meditation is a technique of withdrawing the attention from the senses. And in the process of relaxing the attention or withdrawing the attention, it's no longer so sharply focused or narrowly confined. In fact, the awareness comprehension broadens and expands and broadens and expands. And when thought is transcended completely, our awareness is unbounded, pure, unbounded subjectivity. Then, and really only then for most people, do they experience the self, experience pure subjectivity. And that experience of our pure subjectivity, pure, abstract, unbounded self is the direct experience of this unified field or unity of life that has now been revealed by modern science. So that's meditation. And we could be more specific if we wish. My meditation, obviously, in this case, I'm not talking about concentration or even visualization or contemplation, which is thinking about something. I'm talking about going beyond thought, beyond perception, beyond feeling, beyond the ego to a state of absolute abstraction, universal, pure, unbounded awareness. That is the meditative state. A fourth state of consciousness confirmed by modern physiological science, different from waking, dreaming, and sleeping. That is, as far as I'm concerned, the key experience for the full development of the brain. And the core key experience for the full development of life and ultimately the transformation of society for peace on earth, for the experience of unity, it's fundamental. And as you said, it is elusive because without a technique that takes you there quickly, because life is short, you don't want to spend years trying to get there. You want to get there in minutes and start to infuse that experience of universal awareness and make it permanent in life. What are some of the um, challenges that people face in getting into that space, John? Well, it's a little bit subtle because the, the technique to get there cannot involve any effort whatsoever. <laughs> no trying, no expectation, no mental activity, because this is a state beyond activity, beyond effort beyond concentration, beyond mind. So like falling asleep, you can't force yourself there. Really, it takes a trick. The most ancient of the tricks, the one espoused by the Buddha, the one talked about in the Bhagavad Gita mostly, but there are others, is a technique of what is called reverse sound or reverse hearing. And in modern parlance, in today's society, it is also called transcendental meditation. Reverse hearing is when you take a thought, a specific thought, in this case, a thought without meaning, also called a, mount, a mantra, a thought that really is a sound as opposed to a meaning. That's, you think a thought, and it, the normal way we think a thought, but if the mantra is properly engineered, and these come to us from thousands of years of tradition, a mantra properly chosen for an individual will be more pleasing to experience, more enticing, more alluring at deeper, that means quieter levels of thought, at subconscious levels of thought. And what happens is the mind will automatically follow that mantra, follow that thought down to deeper, quieter, deeper, 
more abstract levels because the whole process is more enticing, alluring. It just it, it entices the attention to go deeper, deeper, deeper. And the process ultimately slips beyond thought spontaneously to experience the source of thought and the source of the mantra, which is unbounded awareness, which is the most pleasing most enticing, most deeply contented state of mind. So once the mind gets a whiff of what's beneath the surface, it'll follow that increasingly serene and blissful sound all the way to its source. That's called reverse hearing, reverse speech, because normally a thought goes in the opposite direction. It bubbles up from deep within as a faint abstract impulse, becoming more formulated, more concrete, more formulated, more concrete, until we can eventually notice the thought. We become aware of the thought. It becomes a conscious thought. And at that point, you can even hear almost the sound of the thought. That's a very concrete level of thinking. That's where we begin. But meditation draws us deeply within. It's an ancient trick. And um, it is the most effective approach, certainly today, according to scientific research, but probably it's been described as such throughout long history of time. But the obstacle, as you say, is misunderstanding of how to get there and the feeling that it requires trying and effort and maybe years of practice, maybe withdrawing from society, going to the Himalayas, wearing a hair shirt or whatever. It doesn't. It's really just um, a matter of instruction. It takes about an hour for maybe four days in a row of instruction to get a, a knack, get a hang for that innocent, natural, effortless process of transcending. And it's easy enough. The kids from the age of 10 can master it. And for extremely practical reasons, this approach of experiencing the meditative state, <clears throat> pure consciousness, is being incorporated in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of public schools, even in the U.S., and throughout the world, with approaching a million students and faculty and parents now experiencing this as part of the school curriculum. Because really, education should be about the full development of the brain, full development of life, full development of the personality. Education today doesn't do that, because education traditionally does not give the experience of unbounded awareness, pure consciousness, the meditative state. And according to research, it's that experience alone that develops the total brain, that engages the entire brain in a synchronous, coherent, orderly way, maximum orderliness of brain functioning, and develops it through regular experience. It's an amazing educational technology, if nothing else. So John, from what you said at the beginning about yourself, then clearly in doing this meditation technique, the children should actually become better at their other academic studies. Absolutely right. And that's frankly between you and me, why the principals and the superintendents <laughs> and the faculty do it. They're not interested in light, enlightenment. They probably don't know what enlightenment is. They're, and even though that will be the inevitable long-term effect of regular meditation, that means development of the total brain. But they are interested in better math scores and graduation rates, and reduced suspensions, reduced ill health and stress-related illness. That's a big problem today. Even for children, we're living in an epidemic of stress. Post-traumatic stress disorder is prevalent even among children, not just soldiers. And what's called ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is just a stress-related learning disorder. And that disorder, for anyone who has 
children with PT with with ADHD. That disorder can be reversed in a matter of 10, 12, 14 weeks of twice daily practice, 10, 20 minutes of meditation twice a day. It's that powerful and it reorganizes the brain, restores orderliness to the brain and balanced brain functioning. So ADHD goes away, criminal activity, criminal behavior, criminal tendencies go down. All of that sort of criminal impulse has to do with the underdevelopment of the prefrontal cortex, the so-called higher brain, which under stress shuts down and doesn't develop. Under chronic stress, stress it doesn't develop properly. So we're living in a sense in a world of arrested development. A lot of stress out there keeps the brain from developing to its full potential. And the meditation that we're talking about being transcending not only engages the total brain, but the body, since the mind has become so quiet, the body quiets down to a state of rest much deeper than sleep, much deeper, far beyond what you would normally call relaxation. And that much deeper rest dissolves deep-seated, deeply rooted stress and tensions so that even something like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which comes from overwhelming stress, gets diffused and dissolved as the body and mind heal themselves, essentially, through the very profound rest and very deep inner bliss and contentment that comes from the meditative state. So, John, we're actually coming up to our second break, and this is a great time to take it. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Be Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. And I have with me today Dr. John Hagelin, who's giving us a wonderful insight it's the benefits of meditation and consciousness and what it actually all is. John, perhaps you could give us your uh, information, your website uh, that, that people could go to to find out more about your work. I think the best way to reach me and easiest to remember is to go to www.tm.org where all this information I think is explained quite well. That would be a good place to start. Perfect. Thank you. So just a couple of things from the, the last uh, segment I just want to come back to. Uh, you went through the, the fact that this uh, meditative state is a measurable 
uh, consciousness. So can you just talk about that a little bit? It's very important in this scientific age that we don't speak purely abstractly, which might even sound like mysticism, but we have empirical and objective confirmation of different states of consciousness. And today, through even the simple, what is called EEG, or electroencephalogram, which measures the firing of neurons, the electrical activity, the functioning of the brain, you can tell from the outside whether someone's sitting there with their eyes closed, asleep, or dreaming, or awake, or under hypnosis, or under anesthesia, or whether they are transcending, meditating, and experiencing this unbounded awareness beyond the source of thought. And they are all strikingly different. The most striking, actually, is the meditative state, because only in that state do you see the entire brain functioning in a highly synchronous way, where the whole brain is engaged and coherent. And if you compare that to waking consciousness, like the difference between going to a symphony and the musicians are warming up, the conductor has not arrived, and they're sawing away at their instruments and creating a cacophony of discordant sound. And why such a noise? Only because the instruments are not coordinated. Once the conductor comes and takes the stand and raises his or her baton, suddenly that noise is transformed into flowing music. The difference is the integrated functioning of the members of the orchestra. So similarly with the brain, the waking state brain is a chaotic brain. Honestly, it's kind of a mess. No two <laughs> parts of the brain are really communicating with each other. They're at war with each other. The left hemisphere, right hemisphere, frontal lobe, occipital lobe, temporal lobe, parietal lobe. There's no conductor present. But in the meditative state, you see an amazing thing. You'll never see something as striking as this if you're a brain scientist. The whole brain functioning in concert. And that's called global EEG coherence. And it's not magic. Coherent brain functioning leads to clear, coherent thinking, clear, coherent speech, and clear, purposeful, effective action. And that means fulfilling action. Everything good about the brain depends on its orderly functioning. That's intelligence, creativity, learning ability, academic performance, moral reasoning, psychological stability, emotional maturity, alertness, reaction time. Everything good about the brain depends on its orderly functioning. Now, with transcending, you can increase the orderliness of brain functioning for students, indeed anyone of any age, people in elderly homes, nursing homes, rise in intelligence, creativity, memory, vitality, and health by experiencing this fourth state of consciousness, this meditative state. So it's really an educational breakthrough of the foremost magnitude, and it will not be too many more years where instead of just hundreds and hundreds of schools, thousands and tens of thousands of schools will be doing it. Well, I shall look forward to that. <laughs> As a former school principal, I, I, I led meditations at the school for this very reason you're talking about. Now, you've shifted from uh, the individual uh, consciousness into a collective consciousness, and I'd love you to talk now a little bit about the Maharishi effect, what that is, and I know, again, there are measurable results from that. Well, absolutely. And uh, firstly, we could say this. We know man, they say, is an island. 
we have an inevitable effect on one another. We have an effect on our spouses, on the environment in our homes. There's a spillover effect of individual stress, individual calm or peace or harmony. Um, in the meditation, meditative state, the awareness expands and expands and expands to become unbounded, experiencing this ocean of universal consciousness, creating a ripple in that ocean. So when an even an individual meditates and transcends, a ripple effect is created and people in the environment of someone who is deeply calm will experience a little bit of that. Just as if you're in the environment of someone who is deeply agitated and ranting, that inevitably also rubs off to some degree. So what's interesting, though, if you put many people together physically in one place, like in one meditation hall, and they are all experiencing and stimulating at the same time this universal field of intelligence, these little ripples created by individuals build up into waves, like tidal waves of harmony, coherence, unity, and they spread throughout the whole society. It's an ancient idea from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. You'll see references to it in the New Testament as well. It's an ancient idea that groups meditating collectively could have a larger societal impact. But now that speculation or now that scriptural testimony has become scientific fact because the magnitude of the effect when you have advanced meditators transcending in a group is so large that it produces a repeatable, reliable, demonstrable result of reducing crime, social violence, terrorism, and war in war-torn areas. And um, this is now a scientific fact. There have been over 50 published studies in the world's foremost peer-reviewed scientific journals using meditation to turn off war like a light switch. It's been done repeatedly in the Middle East, for example, and whenever there has been an experiment of this type where a sufficient number of people, numbering in the thousands, come together to collectively experience and stimulate the fundamental field of unity at the basis of individual and collective consciousness, you see a reduction of social stress, societal tensions, religious, political, ethnic tensions that fuel violence and conflict. And that's people who work in the field of conflict resolution know that the first stage in the emergence of war is mounting tensions among rival factions in critical hotspots throughout the world. If you don't diffuse those mounting tensions, inevitably it reaches a boiling point and erupts as violence. But if you can cool that, <laughs> if you can cool those tensions, diffuse those tensions, even somewhat, you don't reach the point where it erupts as violence, terrorism, and war. And that's what these group meditations accomplish. You mentioned earlier um, about coming together in a group, and I know that some of the, the, the most powerful work has been achieved through yogic flying. Can you explain what that is and why that's so powerful? Okay, yogic flying, also from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and an advanced technique of transcendental meditation, is like a yogic exercise, you could say, where a mental formula is introduced 
almost like a mantra, but different. And what happens, and there are many such so-called siddhis or mental formulas that are prescribed in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali chapter three, and that are part of this advanced TM siddhi program. Each one has a remarkable effect, almost a magical effect in producing an unexpected and very strong, deep mental and physical response. Yogic flying is one of those sutras from the Yoga Sutras, mental formula, which when applied properly and introduced at a sufficiently profound and powerful level, causes the body on the one hand to attempt to fly or involuntarily spring and ultimately, according to tradition, you know, rise up in the air and float eventually. And that's not really so much what's happening today. But what is happening is individuals feel this incredible deep upsurge out of nowhere of this bubbling bliss and waves of unity. And that physical activity and, and the body's involuntary effort to kind of spring into the air from a lotus position is accompanied by the most striking and powerful EEG coherence, most powerful orderliness of brain functioning. It's an extremely powerful technique of meditation, a yogic exercise. But the interesting thing, and the reason it's practiced, is not because it's ever going to replace the airplane. It's practiced because of all the techniques and Patanjali's yoga sutras, thousands of years old, this is the one he prescribes, and this is the one that is found to be most powerful at destroying environmental negativity, at infusing bliss, positivity, and peace into the environment. So group meditation will have this effect. Group practice of what's called yogic flying has an even more powerful effect. And there's one more ingredient that really makes this powerful. That's, as I said, bringing people together. And I need to explain that. When you bring a group together to meditate, the spillover effect of peace into the environment grows as the square of the number of people participating. And that may seem striking, but it's not strange. It is what, it's a universal characteristic of field phenomena. If you take the field of sound, sound waves from loudspeakers, if you put two loudspeakers together so that the speakers are moving in unison, producing the same sound, playing manural, you will get two waves adding together into a single wave, twice as tall. But the power of a wave, the volume of sound, grows as the square of the height of the wave. So two loudspeakers close together like in a boombox playing manural music will produce four times the sound of a single loudspeaker. Two squared is four. Three loudspeakers produce nine times the sound. And uh, with loudspeakers, that principle eventually breaks down. But with uh, humans radiating this powerful waves of unity deep within, gathered in groups, do produce an influence that grows as the square, according to research. And that's why a relatively small group of, say, 1,000 or 2,000 people in a, in a group can tangibly change the trends of time, increase positivity and reduce negativity in an entire country. So, John, we're coming up to our final break. It's a great point to stop, and we'll return and talk about peace on Earth after this break. Spirit of Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation.
the new home for visionary positive change. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Do check out www.myheartcenteredjourney.com where we have uh, uh, every two weeks uh, Ambassadors of Light class. We have one coming up this week on January the 5th, uh, beginning the new year of 2012, and we'll have some interesting uh, discussion there. And also the opportunity to go to Egypt, www.celticmysticaljourneys.com. The second half of February with Finbar Ross and myself looking forward to a great opportunity. I have with me today Dr. John Hagelin, who's giving us a fantastic understanding of consciousness from both the scientific and the human perspective. And John, just before the break, you were talking about the, uh, the strength of collective conscious coherence uh, together. And we started talking about the potentiality for this to lead to world peace in the future. So please continue with that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, world peace, we can consider it individually and collectively. Firstly, of course, if you want a green forest, you've got to have green trees. You can't have, you know, dry, brittle brown trees and ever get a green forest. So a peaceful world will require peaceful individuals. That's why it doesn't make sense to go out and rage for peace and, you know, rail against the evildoers. We really need to be lighthouses of peace ourselves. And ultimately, meditation by giving the experience of the unity of life not only dissolves the physiological stress that creates criminal behavior in the brain, but by giving the fundamental experience of the unity of life and awakening in ourselves the understanding and perception of the fundamental core unity of everyone and everything, every elementary particle, every human being, is an expression of that one unity within us all, the unity of pure consciousness. When you come out of meditation and you see another individual, maybe from a different town, maybe from a different country, different race, different beliefs, instead of seeing that diversity-dominated awareness. You see other, you see potential threat, perhaps a fearful response would come. 
you see more and more a fundamental unity. You see deep within the individual, and deep within the individual, it's, you know, much more than skin deep, you see, the self-same consciousness, self-same unity at the core of everyone. You start to see everything in the light of one's self. Everything becomes as near and as dear as oneself when the scientific truth of the unity of life becomes a living reality in daily life through direct contact, regular contact with it. So the ultimate solution to war and conflict and terrorism crime and this is coming this is not pie in the sky we'll see this i think even within our generation to a good degree as the experience of unity becomes more widespread and as more and more schools for example incorporate that experience into the educational process people will be peaceful within they will spontaneously obey the golden rule you should behave towards others as you would have them behave unto yourself that's automatic when you experience other as oneself, when essentially the notion of other fades and the notion of unity emerges. So ultimately, to have world peace, we want everyone in the world to be peaceful, enlightened, living sort of a unity consciousness, experiencing the unity of everything and everyone. But in the meantime, as you said, we can establish meditating groups in schools. It's a very practical place to do it. And we can start to diffuse the enmity and stress and negativity in our environment through this so-called Maharshi effect, through field effects of consciousness, calm, coherent influence in the collective consciousness. And we can stop crime and open warfare and war-torn areas as 50 consecutive scientific published studies have shown. So, you know, we can handle world peace ultimately by creating peaceful individuals everyone on earth contributing directly to the peace and harmony of the world in the meantime because that will take decades probably but not more we can create these the field effects of consciousness from these groups of advanced meditators i hope we're all going to be part of those groups everyone listening to this show should be a part of that group we can create such a powerful tidal wave of unity and peace that even those who are not meditating and not directly experiencing the unity of life will begin to behave more and more as if they are. So, John, in terms of your current work, uh, just tell us a bit about what you're doing in, in this area to, to move in this direction. Yes, thanks, Peter. One of the things I'm very excited about uh, is my work with the David Lynch Foundation for Consciousness-Based Education and World Peace. This is a purely philanthropic initiative that is that brings the experience of meditation fourth state of consciousness transcendental meditation to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children starting a lot of at-risk children who are from economically disadvantaged neighborhoods tough tough schools crime-ridden schools sometimes um, but all schools ultimately and in Palestine and, uh, you know, that part of the world, in the Middle East and in North America and South America and everywhere. And that is exploding. There's more demand now from schools than we can fulfill. Um, there are, you know, many, many, many hundreds of schools that have incorporated transcending into the curriculum twice a day, 10, 12, 15 minutes. The students all sit and they dive 
within and they experience that ocean of creativity and happiness within it transforms the school the individual students and the whole school like nothing else some of the worst schools really most troubled crime-ridden schools have become the best schools in the entire school districts even in the entire country by adding what education should always have had the direct experience of the knower that is developing the consciousness and the brain of the student, not just cramming them with information that they may or may not absorb. That's not really what education should be. Develop the whole individual, create peace within, and because schools are groups, you know, you've got a school of 500 kids, or 1,000 kids, if they're meditating together as a group and you produce this N-squared power of peace, radiating from that group you have these lighthouses of peace peppered across the entire country and you see and you always do marked reductions of crime negativity increased positive trends and in war-torn areas a almost immediate cessation of armed conflict it's very powerful so the david lynch foundation is just an enabler it helps people who otherwise don't have access to it to learn to meditate, transcendental meditation, which is a very evidence-based meditation. It's very ancient and very effective in delivering anybody immediately to the experience of pure consciousness, the unified field. So it's very exciting how rapidly that is growing, how much endorsement that has from major celebs and major philanthropic organizations. And I do think it'll be very soon, based on this exponential growth, that it's a routine part of school education. You go to school, you develop the total brain. You, you develop, ultimately, enlightenment, which is living the scientific truth of the unity of life. And that is the formula for a peaceful world. John, that's a perfect uh, place for us to finish, and I really, really appreciate your time today. You've given us not only a wonderful explanation, but also a lot of hope for the future. And uh, it brings our year to a wonderful conclusion. So thank you very much for your time today. Great to be with you. Anybody who wants to learn more should visit us at tm.org. Thank you so much, John. So I'd just like to uh, wish all of our listeners a happy new year. And uh, we'll begin the year next week with Denise Johnson, who's going to be giving us some insights into the year 2012 and what we can expect. Have a wonderful week. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. We hope that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tung for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.